with Jesus' baptism and the story of God speaking from heaven, saying, you are my son. And this very sort of personal, real moment between God and Jesus and God telling Jesus, I'm ready for you to go and do what I've called you to do. And then from there we moved and, and we looked at stories of, of Jesus calling us disciples and these 12 men willing to just set aside everything to follow Jesus. And all he asked them was to come and see. And then from there we've moved to Jesus begin to do some really incredible things. He, he spoke with authority and there's this odd story. And if you were here that week, we, Derek told a lot of jokes for one because he's a funny guy. Uh, but for two, because it's an odd sort of story that Jesus speaking to the man with a demon possession. And, and we don't really understand that, but we learn through that story that Jesus' words had power. That he's able to speak and things happened. To the point where everyone around him realized there's something different about this guy. And then from there we move to last week how Jesus meets the man with leprosy. And this is one of my favorite stories that we've done so far this series. And if you're here um, I hope you're able to hear it. Jesus speaks to this man, uh, a leper from birth, cast out of society, away from his family, his friends, uh, treated as a, an other. And Jesus comes and he touches him and he heals him. And the beauty of that story is that Jesus willingly takes the place of this man, allowing the man to go back to his hometown, experiencing grace and freedom and redemption. And Jesus having to stay outside because now he was considered unclean by those around him. And, and we saw for the first time last week this idea that Jesus is willing to take our place, that he cares for us so much that he's willing to suffer in our place, allowing us to go free while Jesus suffers. And this story this morning, I think, is going to get right at the heart of that very idea. If you've heard this story before, if you've grown up in church, how many of you have heard the story of the transfiguration before? If you've heard it, it's an odd story. I'll admit, I've never seen anyone transfigured before. If you have, kudos. Uh, I prayed that God would transfigure me just to give you guys like an idea of what it was like. It didn't happen. Um, I'm guessing he said no, uh, understandably. Uh, but it's, it's sort of an odd story. Uh, even the gospel writers have a hard time really describing what, it, what happened there because as we'll see later, they use language that it's, it's a human language describing a divine thing, and, and it's, a, it's a hard thing to get our head around. But I believe what the story teaches us, and what we're going to see in just a few minutes, is that Jesus is not always who we think he is. He's not always who we want him to be. But ultimately, Jesus is who we all need him to be, our Messiah. So without further ado, let's get to the story. Uh, you saw it on the screen earlier. If you have your Bibles, hopefully you're there. Uh, we're going to jump back just a second uh, to Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Uh, it's just a few verses back. This is a story, it's about six days before our story begins here, and Jesus and his disciples are walking. And Jesus turns sort of abruptly to his disciples and asks them this very interesting question. He says, who do they say that I am? Now that they here, he's talking about everyone. Jesus is doing incredible things. And when people do that, people start talking. And Jesus knows that, and he wants to hear from someone else, who are they saying, about, what are they saying about me? Who, who, who are they saying I am? And his disciples respond, and they say, well, some say you're Elijah. I think that's pretty awesome. Some say that you're John the Baptist. Come back, which I thought was interesting, because John hasn't been dead that long. But they imagine that John has come back in the form of Jesus. Some are saying that. And some say you're just a great prophet. 
And Jesus very quickly turns it to them and says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, you'll see here in verse 29, Jesus says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. And I love this story. I love any story involving Peter, including our story this morning. Because Peter, in some instances, is just like that guy who just gets it right and is bold and not afraid to share what he believes. And other times, that gets him in trouble. And he says really dumb things. And that's me. Like that's, and I think that's all of us. We just say and do some really dumb things sometimes. So that gives me hope uh, that we all can, can do okay in life. But this story... Peter has a very real idea of what it meant to be the Messiah. In his world, from childbirth, he began learning about one day God's going to send someone in this world that we know that's wrong, that's messed up, that people die, that people suffer. And in his mind, that we suffer under this Roman rule, one day God's going to fix things. He's going to send this Messiah. He's going to bring peace. He's going to set the world right, punishing the evildoers and bringing justice to the world. And so Peter says this, you are that guy. You are the Christ. And Jesus agrees. He, tells, he says, he doesn't, doesn't disagree with them. He just tells them not to say that to anyone else. But then, starting with verse 31, let's, let's read, it, read on through. It says that immediately he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priest, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now I imagine this must have been a very difficult moment. I know it had to be because for Peter to rebuke the man he had just called the Christ takes a lot of guts. Once again, Peter being Peter. Peter believes that Jesus is who we want him to be, but yet he doesn't understand that Jesus path, his direction, his goal in life is taking him in one direction, the cross, to death, to suffering. Peter can't get his head around this to the point where he's willing to pull Jesus aside, say, you're wrong, Jesus. That's not what the Messiah does. The Messiah doesn't die. And Jesus actually responds and says, very poignant language, he says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. I read this today because we need this as the context of where the disciples are, and especially Peter, James, and John, where they are. Because this is only six days later that Jesus takes them up the hill to pray, takes them up this high mountain. The, the disciples are struggling. They don't know what to believe. They, they know that Jesus is, has done incredible things. They know that Jesus has healed people, that he's raised people from the dead. And they're willing to say that he's the Messiah, the Christ, Yet now Jesus is talking about his upcoming death, and they're just confused. They're filled with doubt. They don't know what to do. And so Jesus takes them away and says, we're going to seek out God's wisdom. Now Jesus had a habit of doing this, getting away to pray. Uh, sometimes he went up mountains like this. And I'm always interested why a mountain. Like sometimes, like maybe you feel closer to God. God. Sometimes you think of him up there. Like maybe we should pray in airplanes and that would be heard better. Uh, But I think ultimately Jesus is trying to pull them away to say, I know life is difficult. Let's get over here for a little while and let's seek out what God would say. What is God's response to your doubt? Does he have anything to say here? 
And I'd say he does. Because in the midst of of their prayer, Jesus, as the scripture tells us, is transformed. Now, like I said earlier, I I don't really know what that means. Mark says that his clothes begin to shine whiter than any bleach could bleach them. And my only experience with bleach is on accident. I think at least half my clothes have at least a spot with bleach on them. But I would imagine that that is very bright. And in Luke, we see that Jesus' face sort of changes. And in Matthew, it goes even further to say that Jesus' face shines like the sun. Like I said earlier, there's, we're not really sure exactly what happened, but we know that whatever happened, God's, sort of, God's glory began to emanate out of Jesus in a way that had never been experienced before and probably would never be experienced again this side of heaven. This shook everyone. They were afraid, rightfully so. In ancient Jewish uh, custom and, and belief, they believed in heaven as we do, most of us, yet so often in our culture we believe as heaven is that thing up there that we go to when we die, which is partly true. But G- G- Jews actually believe that Heaven was this realm around us that was working alongside of us and that Paul can write things like there are powers that we never see fighting and battling throughout our everyday life for us. And every now and then God would sort of pull back the curtain, step in through the realm from heaven to earth, and we see a glimpse of the divine. And it's always special. And it's always terrifying. And you see here, the disciples are terrified. God enters the human story to uncover for just a moment what has been hidden from our human perception all along. Now, as the disciples are taken in the scene, there's this interesting twist. Um, the Bible tells us that Moses and Elijah just sort of show up. Now, I'm not sure how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. Uh, that question never really gets answered. Maybe they had name tags. Uh, I doubt it. Uh, but we do know that somehow they know. Maybe Jesus calls them by name, and they listen, and they're like, oh my gosh, that's Moses, that's Elijah. Uh, we don't really know. There were no pictures back then. There were no photos. There were no iPhones that you could snap a picture of. Uh, yet, we do know they knew it. They knew it immediately. It's Moses and Elijah, these two great stalwarts of the, of the Jewish faith. Moses being the guy who climbs the mountain, who seeks out God's wisdom, and actually gets to see God's glory in a story that's not very unfamiliar to this one. Where Moses experiences God's glory and he's changed and he comes down off the mountain and his face is just radiating the glory of God. And then there's Elijah who stood on Mount Carmel, the the greatest of all the prophets. And this mountain and there's 400 prophets of this other God named Baal and they all want to kill Elijah. And Elijah dares them and says, my God is the one true God. And God sends fire from heaven. And this sort of very amazing story on another mountaintop, which I just think is really interesting. Nothing else. And so Moses and Elijah are sitting there, and I don't know about you, but if I see someone that I respect, someone famous, like, I want to ask them a lot of questions. On a much, much lower level, I mean, I'm a big Braves fan. If Jason Hayward walked in, I would be very interested. And I'd probably ask, like, what was it like when when you had the three-run home run, the first at-bat of your career? If you're a baseball fan, you understand that. But, but on a much, much, much higher level, if you're Peter, James, and John, and the two greatest figures of your faith show up in front of you, Moses and Elijah, I would imagine you have questions. I mean, Moses, what was it like when you stretched your rod out and the Red Sea parted? And you saw all of your people be able, begin to walk across the dry land. What was that like? Or what was it like as Elijah 
standing on Mount Carmel, daring the 400 prophets as God sent fire from heaven. What was that like? But the interesting thing here is that the story tells us that Moses and Elijah are only talking about one thing. Flip with me to Luke chapter 9. It's the same story, just a different writer. Luke chapter 9, verses 31. says, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. And they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Moses and Elijah, the two greatest people of the Jewish faith, show up here, and all they're concerned about is Jesus' death. And you get the sense that all of heaven is like waiting in anticipation to see if Jesus will come down off the mountain and walk towards Jerusalem towards what he knows is his ultimate destination, towards the cross. We see here that Peter responds in another Peter way. Peter doesn't want this to end. If you've ever been in like a worship service and you sort of feel God pull back that curtain for you and you come face to face with God and it sort of changes you, some of you have probably experienced that, I know I have. You don't want that moment to end. Or say you're sitting outside and you're just, staring at the stars and there's something that just sort of moves in you and you see the divine in your world. You don't want that to end, but you know it must. So Peter says, let's build some houses. Let's build tabernacles for these three people, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, and we'll just stay here forever. Like that's a very normal thing to think, to desire. Yet even more so, I think Peter realizes that if they leave this mountain— They're walking away from this glory, and they're heading towards the cross. So Peter wants to skip the pain. He wants to skip the suffering. And he wants to to experience the glory of the resurrection without the defeat of the cross. But God sees it differently. And in the same vein as when he told Peter, when Jesus told Peter, he says, you don't have the things of God in mind, but the things of man, God speaks. And every time God speaks in the Bible, people get scared. It's understandable. The God of the universe speaking. What he says here is very interesting. He says, this is my son. Very similar to the baptism story. Yet now he's addressing it to everyone else. Before he's speaking to Jesus, and now he's speaking to everyone, saying, this is my son, my beloved. Listen to him. In the midst of the doubts of the disciples, the struggling to come to grips with the Messiah who would save by dying, who would rescue by being captured, God tells them and tells us this morning to listen to him. This isn't an angry dad yelling at a misbehaving child. Listen to your mother, which if you're a parent, I know you've experienced. As a children's minister, I think I say that at least once a week. Like, where's your mom? But... This is the God of the universe, the creator of all things, speaking and saying, listen, I know it's hard to grasp. I know it's hard to understand that the Messiah that you want maybe not be the the Messiah you need. But listen to him, because he's heading in the right direction. The story ends as Jesus walks his disciples back down the mountain, away from this glory and away from the ease of being up there, and he heads back down to a world that's suffering. There's a very real sense that the rest of the story of Mark is just one long journey towards Jerusalem, towards where Jesus would meet his end. 
on another mountaintop not unlike this one. Yet here, God's glory would be revealed not in brilliant lights and amazing miracles, but in pain and agony and suffering and death of the Messiah himself. The disciples, and we so often want this first Messiah, the, the Jesus on the mountain filled with his glory. We want to skip the, the suffering. We want to skip the people out there that are hurting. But what we learn about Jesus here is that he's so concerned with everyone else, so concerned with the people that are suffering, the people that are hurting, the lepers who have been kicked out of society, that he's willing to, to walk away from that glory, to set it aside for the moment, and head down the mountain to a world that is hurting. The story gives us a glimpse of what it will look like for eternity for those who follow Jesus. This glory, this amazingness where Peter wants to stay there forever. Yet it's not time for us to stay there because now there's a world that's hurting. There's a world that's suffering. I think in one hand this story shows me that, that life is difficult and God doesn't always work the way we expect him to. I mean sometimes... Life is tough. Sometimes a loved one dies, and we pray, and we pray, and we pray, and they still die. And sometimes you lose your job, and you don't know why, and, and you pray, God, give me a job, and it just doesn't happen. Sometimes you are getting older, and you're not married, and you pray, God, send me a, a husband or a wife, and it just never happens. That's life, and if Jesus ignored that, and stayed on this mountain, away from the hurting people, the people that were struggling, I think it would actually be harder for me to follow him. The beauty of this story is that we have a Savior in Jesus who's willing to sacrifice all that glory that he so richly deserved and come down to a world that is hurting, to a world that is suffering, and offer grace, offer hope. As the writer of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way that we have, yet did not sin. And the beauty of this story is that by doing so, by sacrificing that and coming into the world, Jesus conquered the world that so often conquers us. He gave us real hope, not by escaping it, but by facing it head on, heading to the cross, and rising from the dead. The glory of the cross is not that God died. It's that he did die, yet rose from the dead. And this story, the story of Jesus being transformed, it's addressed and written for, as the disciples were feeling, and I'm sure many of you are feeling today, anyone who is struggling to see, to hear, to comprehend, and to believe the beautiful and harsh reality of the gospel of Jesus. And what is that? It's that sometimes life is difficult, yet Jesus has suffered alongside of us. He's been there when times are tough. He did not escape the problems, but he faced them. As Roman 8, Romans 8 tells us, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The beauty of this story, and as I said in the beginning, we've gone through a season of just revelation about Jesus, and I think this story teaches us the most important thing about Jesus is that he cares so much for us that he gave himself. That he sacrificed the world he knew he could have, and he came to die. To suffer the world's best it could give, but come away victorious. 
Now, I don't know what the application is here. This series has not been one where we can very easily say, go and do this. Uh, Go and and love God more. Love your neighbors more. Uh, Hug some babies. Uh, That's that's not what we're here for. Uh, That would be a terrible sermon um, if that's all I said. But our, our, our goal here isn't to necessarily say, go do this. It's just to come and see. And we've sought to do that every week for the past eight weeks. So maybe all there is today is to come and see that Jesus cares deeply about us. Enough to suffer. And enough to call us to follow him through a life that is difficult, the life that is filled with pain, yet promises us that as we see a glimpse here in the story, that one day the glory we see here will be ours. The glory of God's full revelation forever and ever. That is the gospel. And I think it's beautiful. Uh, We're going to take communion in a second. And uh, if you have been here before, we do this every week. And we always tell you it's a time for you to sit and reflect on who Jesus was. And that's the beauty of this season for us, is we'll be able to do that on a weekly basis. And I pray that this morning as we come and we take of the bread and take of the cup, that we sit and, and we meditate on the fact that Jesus did not leave us here to suffer, but he came down the mountain and became one with us. He took our place as the leper experienced last week, allowing us to go free I said this earlier, and I want to reiterate it. We're doing a class, uh, it's called Come and See, and it's a class for anyone that is struggling to understand what it means to follow Jesus. And I I invite anyone here, if you're in that boat, if you're struggling as the disciples were, as all of us do sometimes, come and see. Uh, Pick up some information in the back. We would love to have you join us. Uh, But as we move into this communion, I pray that we understand that Jesus cares deeply for us and is willing to sacrifice everything to see us transformed. Uh, Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that as you did this morning in this story, we follow you down the hill. Uh, God, that uh, while life is difficult and we can't ignore that, you promise us promise us that if we follow you, if we uh, stick to where you are leading us, though it may be tough, ultimately it leads us to life, God. Leads us to, to joy, a joy that we'll never understand. Father, we love you so much, and I pray that uh, this season has been one of revelation and of, and of discovery, God. One of finding something out about you that maybe we didn't understand and allowing that to change us, that to move in us, God. And I pray that this morning, this story, this full revelation of who you are will change us, God. Or offer us real hope, real peace to a world that is struggling. To a group of people in this room that know exactly what that means. God, we love you and I pray that your grace and your peace will be here. Lord, we love you, and we give all glory to you. It's your name we pray. Amen.